Welcome to the Freeman Law Project, a podcast with thought-provoking insights on tax and white-collar matters, the art of trial lawyering, and the most influential legal issues of the day. Brought to you by some of the nation's top legal minds. And now, your host. Hello and welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Freeman Law Project. I'm your host, Jason Freeman, and alongside me today is a is a regular, I'll call him a co-host now, Matthew Roberts. Matt, thanks for joining us, as always. Jason, thanks for having me. We've got some good cases again this week, I think. We do. You know, there's a particularly interesting charitable deduction case, and then the, there are a handful of pretty similar but nonetheless important penalty cases that I think we'll, we'll probably take up in, in the aggregate and, and drill down on, you know, how penalties work, how penalty defenses generally work. Matt, you want to you wanna start us off with the charitable case? Sure. So this one is Emanuel versus Commissioner. Came out on August 17th. It's a Judge Gustafson case. And the taxpayer here, Mr. Emanuel, was a real estate developer. As part of his business, he, he routinely purchased real property in, in various locations. And in this case, in 1999, he purchased about 200 acres of undeveloped property in Westford, Massachusetts. He attempted to use the property in an attempt to, to get profit from it through various development schemes, most of which kind of fell through. Eventually, he actually went to the city of Westford and and tried to establish an affordable housing project on the property. There was a lot of back and forth, and at one time he actually had to go to the state of Massachusetts to get some approval for, for the affordable housing. Eventually, he ends up selling about 104 acres of the 200 acres to the city for this affordable housing project. Towards the the end of the project, he still got some acreage left over, about 90 or so acres that he tried to sell to the city, but the city just did not have the funds to be able to purchase it. They would have to raise taxes by more than what they wanted to do. So what Mr. Emanuel did is he, he talked to... Um, some tax professionals and determined that that he would likely get a charitable deduction if he just simply donated this property to the city. And he did so and the city accepted it. On his 2008 return, he he obtained an appraisal. The appraisal for, for part of the property was $1.5 million. In 2009, he, he donated the rest of the property, the 71 acres, and reported about a $2.5 million charitable contribution deduction on that return. Under Section 170, there are certain limitations that, that deal with essentially your, your adjusted gross income that limited. He was limited, and it resulted in a lot of these charitable contribution deductions carrying forward to subsequent years. So he took, took the deductions on uh, his 2010 through 12 tax years. The IRS examined the returns. Um, obviously, a very large charitable contribution deduction is going to get some scrutiny from the IRS. They went through the exam. They issued a notice of deficiency, which disallowed the charitable contribution deductions. The notice of deficiency essentially disallowed it because of the value. But after the taxpayer filed a petition in the tax court, the IRS raised the issue that, well, 
you did attach a qualified appraisal to the return, but you didn't meet certain requirements under the regulations for a qualified appraisal. The IRS also asserted accuracy-related penalties for the years, and um, essentially this is kind of the, the setting the table for the arguments that were raised by the parties. What ended up happening in this case was it really focused on the qualified appraisal requirements. There are essentially 11 or so requirements under the regs to qualify as a qualified appraisal, and this is necessary if the donation is over $5,000, which in this case it obviously was. The IRS pointed to really two what they saw as defects in the qualified appraisal. One was that the, the date of the contribution or the expected date was not mentioned in the appraisal that was performed on these properties. The second kind of defect the IRS found was that there wasn't a, a scope or language defining the scope of the appraisal to, to tell the reader and the IRS that the appraisal was being done for income tax purposes. So the IRS is arguing to the tax court that because of these two defects, the taxpayer should not get any of the deductions. As is common in Section 170 cases with, with these types of appraisals, because there are so many requirements and, these, and technical, very technical requirements that have to be made, um, it's pretty common for taxpayers to miss maybe one, two, or more of these requirements. And what the tax court has held um, for, for a long time now is that in certain instances, you don't have to have strict compliance with these requirements. In other words, you can have substantial compliance and still be entitled to the deduction. In this case, the Judge Gustafson kind of looked to see whether there was substantial compliance, and he noted that the appraisal at issue had actually been done within 30 days of when the contribution or the donation was made to the city. What Judge Gustafson said, which, which is logical, is that if that's the case, um, there's not really any, any reason not to accept the appraisal. It was done about the same time that the donation was made. If, if there was a discrepancy or a large time frame where the appraisal had been done, but then the donation was done maybe a year or, or later, then you could get into issues with fair market value and whether the appraisal um, was actually matching the fair market value of when the donation was made, but not in this case, not where it was only 30 days apart. Um, interestingly, on the second requirement, the IRS argued with, with it not stating that it was for income tax purposes, Judge Gustafson really sat there and said, you know, there, there's not really a difference between an income tax appraisal and just a general appraisal. You know, to, ju to, to Judge Gustafson, um, at least in his review of the appraisal, it was really looking to, to determine what fair market value was, whether that was for income tax purposes or not. And in this case, Judge Gustafson said that he believed that because there was a determination of fair market value, that essentially just because it did not say specifically that it was for income tax purposes, that that, that requirement had, had, along with the other requirements, had been substantially complied with. Um, so in other words, it was a win for the taxpayer. And one other issue in this case, aside from uh, strict and substantial compliance, 
Jason, as we know, to get to get a, a charitable contribution under Section 170, there can't be any type of quid pro quo. You know, in other words, you have to kind of give it freely to the donee as, as kind of as a charitable type of um, purpose and, and not have any strings attached to the do- donation. In this case, because the property was donated at around the same time the affordable housing project deal was done with the city, the IRS tried to argue, well, he was doing, he was donating the rest of the property only to get the deal. But the, the tax court found a couple issues with that. Number one, um, there was no testimony by any of the witnesses or any evidence in the record that really showed that, it, that this was part of a quid pro quo. One of the other issues was really had to do with timing. Um, the deal had, or had pretty much been wrapped up and finished, and Mr. Emanuel was kind of stuck with this property, and it made sense to the court that, well, what else is he supposed to do with it? Um, you know, it, it made sense. Why not just give it to the city um, at, you know, at, as kind of separate from the deal, but, but because he, Mr. Emanuel can't really do anything else with the property. So it, it was an evidentiary issue, um, and it also just made sense to the court that, that this was done with, without a quid pro quo that would deny the charitable uh, deduction. Last issue was the accuracy-related penalties. Obviously, um, because the court upheld the donation and found that the fair market values were proper and that it had been reported properly on the return, there is no accuracy-related penalty that goes along with these. So, Jason, after all the Section 170 cases in the last week and and those that mainly dealt with conservation easements, it's good to actually kind of chalk a a win in the column for the taxpayer this week. Absolutely. That is, uh, you know, week after week, it feels like we have been talking about conservation easements, charitable deductions, the law that's been crewing, I guess, in that area. This was, I, I agree with you completely, a good one to kind of go back to some of those those principles. And, uh, you know, I think you really hit on the main, the main issues here, Matt. One of the other issues that I do see as a tie-in to an issue or area that is gonna, at some point, become front and center in those conservation easement cases is this standard for valuation, the highest and best use standard, which is is a standard that we we see in the conservation easement context as well. And, you know, I think it's worth noting here, that's that's generally the standard for your charitable contributions in, in terms of property. And it's defined as a property's highest and best use, um, or that is its highest and most profitable use for which it's adaptable and needed or likely to be needed in the reasonable near future. But case law has held the highest and best use can be any realistic objective potential use of the property. And I see that area being, and it's a common area for potential disputes in the in terms of valuations, but I see that being one that's really going to become front and center at some point here in, in these strings of cases in the conservation easement context. And, you know, while thinking about those, one of the things you kind of hit on is I think it's important to note the court here, you know, Matt, it seemed to me kind of 
kind of drew some barriers between its approach here and how, how it has approached conservation easement cases in particular. And, and, you know, it really, it mentions here that in the absence of heightened potential for abuse, which it has seemed to view charitable, contribute, uh, charitable conservation easements in that light, um, it says in the absence of heightened potential for abuse, it's appropriate to recall that Congress generally favors charitable giving and that the courts have honored that legislative intent by broadly construing these statutes that stem from motives of public policies like Section 170 that is intended to incentivize charitable donations and contributions. So an interesting case, Matt. Anything else there? No, I'd, I'd just add, I mean, in our practice, we, we see it a lot with valuation issues. It, it's not an exact science, and, and the courts even recognize that. Um, you know, it, it's routinely teed up as a battle of the experts, and, you know, it's just ripe for dispute. And, I, and it, it makes sense to me, and it probably makes sense to you, Jason, why we're seeing a lot of these cases having to be resolved through litigation. Matt, let's move on to the other set of cases. There was a there was a case last week, really the only case that came out uh, that was issued with the court, and then there were a couple of cases this week. And you know, I think you can really put them all basically into the same bucket. And I'm not sure that the individual facts of each case warrants a you know a review here, but they all they all basically deal with some of the more familiar or ordinary IRS penalties and the basic defense that you generally see put up to those, those penalties, uh, reasonable cause. There were a lot of substantiation issues in these cases, and, and, and that involves you know, the, whether the taxpayer is able to come forward with sufficient documentation to demonstrate that they're actually entitled to the deduction. Courts are uh, not slow to remind us that deductions are really a matter of legislative grace and taxpayers have to jump through the necessary hoops and provide the necessary documentation to be entitled to deductions that are allowed under the code. When they don't, or when the IRS thinks that they did not, the IRS has a number of penalties that it can propose, and some of which may be automatically proposed. These include the substantial understatement penalty. So the code provides a 20% penalty on the portion of any underpayment of tax that's attributable to what's known as a substantial understatement of income tax. And an understatement of tax, the amount of tax paid or owed, is substantial if it exceeds the greater of two numbers, $5,000 or 10% of the tax required to be shown on the return. There are some other contexts where those, those figures may, may be altered, but that's your, that's your general rule for when there is a substantial understatement. However, the code actually provides that this penalty, this substantial understatement penalty does not apply 
to any portion of an understatement or underpayment if it's shown that there was, quote, reasonable cause for that portion and that the taxpayer acted in good faith. Whether a decision by the taxpayer, you know, whether a, a taxpayer has reasonable cause and acted in good faith is a facts and circumstances determination. It's, it's made on a case-by-case -case basis. But there are a number of circumstances that come up somewhat regularly that, that sometimes will signal that reasonable cause exists. This can include an honest misunderstanding of facts or law that not standing alone, but that is reasonable in light of all the other facts and circumstances. You know, for example, the taxpayer's experience, their knowledge, their education, other objective criteria, you know, factors that exist uh, at, the, at the point in time. One of the common refrains or grounds for reasonable cause is the good faith reliance on the advice of a tax professional, particularly a qualified tax professional. And the regs provide for this defense, um, but there are really three elements that the courts have recognized a taxpayer must demonstrate to establish this reliance defense in, in the civil context. One, the tax advisor needs to be shown to have been a competent professional who had sufficient expertise to justify the taxpayer's reliance. Two, the taxpayer needs to have fully disclosed all of the relevant facts to the advisor. And three, the taxpayer needs to have actually relied in good faith on the advisor's judgment. The case laws also provided that or held that a professional needs to be free of conflicts of interest in order to make the taxpayer's reliance on that advice or that tax professional's advice reasonable. And so, you know, Matt, we, we come across this, this issue and reasonable cause defenses, which come in, you know, there's really no, <laughs> there's no limit to the uh, potential grounds that, that might uh, satisfy reasonable cause. We see it in all sorts of facts and circumstances, but it, but that is, you know, in our practice, that's one of the, the more frequent things that we're, we're fighting about is, is really penalties. And, and oftentimes that includes trying to establish reasonable cause. There are, you know, depending on the penalties at issue, there are of course a host of other avenues to potentially remove penalties. That could include first time abatement relief. That could include specific safe harbors that may be provided under a statute that, that's relevant. But again, reasonable cause is kind of your general penalty relief issue. You know, I've, I've done hundreds of these reasonable cause statements, as you have. Um, and what I've always found interesting is just how factually intensive they are. Um, each, each one that I've, I, I have not had one that's been identical to another, notwithstanding all the ones that I've done. Um, there's always some nuance some important facts, you know, some weakness, potentially weak fact um, that, that, that comes to light. 
and really it, it's it's an art i would say in trying to communicate the story of the taxpayer to the irs um and really highlighting you know the strengths and kind of downplaying the weaknesses um in trying to request either a waiver or an abatement of of the penalties completely agree matt you know there there is Let's say there's a real art and there's a real science to drafting a reasonable cause statement. It, there, there's a real art in putting together a credible and compelling statement. So you're absolutely right. These can't be cookie cutter statements. They can't be rote recitations of the law without really tying that into, you know, a case specific analysis. Um, and there's, it's got to be credible. You know, we're often supplementing these with documents, exhibits, affidavits from objective people, hopefully other than just the taxpayer, to establish that our, our view of what happened, our, our story or set of facts really did, in fact, occur and, and that they're correct and should lead to the conclusion we're, we're talking about. And so there's a, there's an art element to that and there's a science element to that. And, and one other aspect of this, Matt, as you know, is the IRS, you know, there are kind of two avenues that these go through in terms of being reviewed and processed. The, the IRS actually has a computerized process or program, the reasonable cause assistant, which looks for certain criteria, needs to ensure that all the boxes or checks actually get, get this through the system and approved. And, and then there's a human element to this in, in terms of human review. And you really need to, you need to understand what you're doing to ensure that you are checking all of those boxes and putting it together again in a, in a very compelling and credible manner that gets this thing over the finish line and gets the penalty relief that you're looking for. So Jason, we, you know, we've been talking about reasonable cause in the context of accuracy related penalties under section 6662. But as, as you and I both know, their reasonable cause is kind of a term of art in the code that's found uh, as a defense for various penalties. One, one of the more notable ones that we see kind of day to day is the failure to uh, timely file a return uh, by the due date. Um, for example, under 6651A1, um, you know, you have to file a, a individual tax return, as everyone knows, by April 15th of, of the following year, unless you get a valid extension on file. Um, if you fail to file that return timely, then, then there are kind of horrendous penalties that can be imposed against you. Five, pretty much 5% per month of, of the tax, which can be a pretty, um, pretty substantial penalty. So under 6651, there's, there's also a reasonable cause exception um, that can get you out of the penalties, but that exception has been at least arguably limited since 1985, when the United States Supreme Court decided a case called U.S. v. Boyle. Um, in that case, the executor um, had failed to file a, uh, a state tax return on time um, when it was due and got hit with uh, late filing penalties, which again were, were significant. Um, it worked its way up all the way 
to the Supreme Court. And the, the primary issue or the argument that the executor was raising in that case was she, he or she relied on a tax professional to have the estate return filed. And because of the negligence of the, uh, the tax professional in filing it late, the, the estate should not be liable for the penalty. And in a significant decision um, that still, still is in play today, the Supreme Court basically said, well, you can't rely on a tax professional or any agent um, to necessarily file a return by the deadline. It's a non-delegable type duty um, that falls on you to make sure the return is filed on time. And, and, and basically, we've seen this numerous times. Um, you know, the IRS is obviously well aware of this decision. I've seen it brought up um, in, in when I make uh, some arguments that, that the IRS thinks comes into play with Boyle, they obviously cite it. Um, do you want to add anything on, on Boyle and kind of how it, how it interacts with our penalty defenses today? Absolutely. You know, Boyle, had, it's definitely, you know, that seminal case on the issue. It's a case that's been around and I mean, one might say haunted taxpayers and tax professionals for the better part of, of 30, 40 years. It is, you know, it's interesting. So one distinction under Boyle is with respect to advice as to whether a tax return is actually due, right? That is the type of issue where the court's analysis there really kind of drew a distinction between a taxpayer who knows that something is due, knows that a return is due, and effectively delegates that authority to a tax professional who negligently or otherwise fails to file it on time, right? And as you mentioned, the, the court viewed that as a non-delegable duty and one that would not give rise to reasonable cause defense. But there may be a distinction there where the tax professional actually provides advice as to whether or not a tax return itself is actually due. And, and that's a sometimes a subtle distinction, but provides a, a way often to, you know, where you, where you know what you're doing as the tax professional fighting these penalties to draw a distinction that can, can circumvent the issues in Boyle. And Matt, one of the, what I would say is more interesting issues is as we've seen the evolution of Boyle, there, the, it's, it's evolved from a time when tax returns were filed physically through the mail. The, you know, the mail, the U.S. Postal Office uh, has obviously been in the news here in, in the last week or two. Well, it, it, the tax system has changed. We've, we've moved towards a system that really not only incentivizes, and in some cases uh, almost requires an opt-out by tax professionals uh, to file tax returns in any other way than electronically. So now most returns are filed electronically. And one can argue, I think pretty credibly, that that's really, that's a, been a significant change in circumstances that, you know, has kind of undercut the basis for the, the Boyle decision and the rules. And I think it's been an open question out there whether or not that general rule of Boyle actually applies in the context of electronically filed returns. Um, and one that, you know, eventually we're going to see the courts kind of coalesce on a, 
on a position, I suspect, or, or that may even make its way up to the Supreme Court eventually. Jason, we were talking about this case earlier um, in the Fifth Circuit, the Haynes case, which, which was filed in uh, the early part of last year, January 29th of 19, where a taxpayer actually made that argument. Um, they had filed, or they believed they had filed their return electronically on time, but the IRS computer system kicked it back out because of a filing error. I believe it, it was the taxpayer identification number uh, was put in the wrong place or it didn't match up with the, with the IRS's computer system. So it kicked it back out. Um, the issue in that case was the IRS uh, predictably tried to argue that, well, this is the quintessential Boyle, <coughs> uh, Boyle set of facts. You relied on a tax professional to file your return. They did not in fact do so and therefore under the rationale of Boyle, you end up, you're, you're liable for the penalties. And the uh, Fifth Circuit, interestingly, sat there and said, not so fast. They, they essentially kind of punted on the issue a little bit because it was uh, the, the procedure of the, or the posture of the case was a, a summary judgment motion. But one of the factual issues was whether the tax professional had in fact been negligent in the way they prepared the return um, and filed it. And that was a factual issue that was not resolved properly on summary judgment motion. But the court did at least insinuate that because times have changed and electronic filing is now ubiquitous, that, that Boyle may not have, it, its rationale may not necessarily apply to electronic filing. So, so the courts are starting to hear this issue. It's a it's an interesting one. I, I, I think it's one of those kind of fundamental issues pervades taxpayers you know, across the board I, that I think is is an important one, a really important one. And I was I, for one, was glad to see the Fifth Circuit's position and, and language, really just its tenor on this issue, because to my mind, you know, Boyle notwithstanding, it's absolutely a factual issue that's intertwined with the other facts and circumstances and you know where taxpayers are are able to credibly make that case at least enough to survive uh, you know a motion for summary judgment um I, I think it's an issue ultimately for the fact finder and and not one of not one of law you know again in my opinion matt interesting cases looks like we'll have plenty of topics to to talk about on that front in the in the months ahead um, anything else to add to today's cases i think that's it jason matt as always thanks for thanks for joining us on this episode of the freeman law project to our listeners out there as you know we as a firm provide a a blog or insight post every week every friday summarizing in depth and detail the law and issues and analysis in each of the substantive tax court opinions that are issued during that week. We invite you to visit our insights blog at www.freemanlaw.com. Check out our insights and check out specifically our recurring insight on the tax court and brief. If anything that you heard today was of interest or something that you want to drill down into further. Again, Matt, thanks for joining us. We are signing off. We will see you on the next episode.